This episode of No Place Like Home is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join our 3.8 million members and supporters working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. And now, on to this episode of No Place Like Home. Hi, I'm Anna Jane Joyner, a climate activist living on the Gulf Coast of Alabama. And I'm Marianne Hitt, climate activist and director of the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign, living in the West Virginia Hills. This is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. And this season, we are bringing the light. We are exploring how spirituality in all of its forms plays a role in how we meet the climate crisis. Because this is not something that we can tackle with just technology, with just policy or science. It also takes strength and courage and the kinds of things that a lot of people draw from their spiritual traditions and practices. So this season, we're on a quest to gather guidance and wisdom from all different kinds of spirituality. And we're going to dive into the Muslim faith today with an old friend of mine, Ibrahim Abdul Mateen. He was raised in Brooklyn and Queens and is now a author, an urban strategist, and an environmental thought leader, and has worked with mayors and political leaders and corporations advising them on sustainability. He also has written a book about Muslim teachings on the environment and our relationship with nature. But first, we have some catching up to do. Marianne, I am so excited to be here in person in your lovely home. We are in West Virginia together. Yay. It is absolutely beautiful. You know, it's the eastern hardwood forests in the winter are a special magical place and we can see them right outside my window. So I'm so happy to have you here. I know. I love I went for a little walk this morning and I loved the moss was like sparkling a little bit. It was it was very magical. I could feel the spirit. (laughs) sustains me this place. So you have some big news to share with us. Well, we have hit a big milestone in the Beyond Coal campaign. Uh, Coal plant number 300 announced to retire in the United States, which was quickly followed by plants number 301, 302. Um, Plant number 300 was Dole Hills in Louisiana. It was a notorious environmental justice offender, very expensive, very polluting, and took about seven years of advocacy to get the plant announced to retire uh, by 2026. The utility wanted to keep running it till almost 2050. And you know now it's essential that we support an economic transition for workers, that we don't replace the plant with gas, but I think it's a great reminder of the fact that progress is still happening on the scale that matters and the time frame that matters on climate despite um, some challenging times. Congratulations to you and the whole Beyond Coal campaign. It's It really is like it's important to remember that we're winning on a lot of fronts and getting rid of coal is one of the places we're winning on. And so here we are kicking off another episode in our season of Bring the Light. Aren't you so excited? I am. Spirituality has obviously always been an important part of my life because of my growing up in that world. But as of late, I've kind of come back to it and, and exploring the world's different spiritual traditions has given me a lot of courage and I'm excited to explore it more. But first, let's hear from one of our listeners. We put out the call for folks to send us a passage or a prayer that has been meaningful to them on their spiritual journey around climate change. We'd love to hear from you and let's hear from one of our listeners right now. Hi, 
My name is Barbara Ford, and I'm a listener from Portland, Oregon. Here's something that gives me strength in the face of climate change. It's a quote from Joanna Macy. If we were to be given a pill to be convinced, don't worry, it's going to be okay. Would that elicit from us our greatest creativity and courage? No. It's that knife edge of uncertainty where we come alive to our truest power. If you'd like to share something with us, you can send us a voice memo. You can record it on your phone and email it to us at noplacelikehomepodcast at gmail.com. So tell me about our guest today. So I first met Ibrahim Abdul-Mateen back, uh, let's, just, let's just call it many years ago, um, when Green for All, the organization Green for All, was being formed by Van Jones and Majora Carter, and they brought together a cohort of activists to help inform that work and that organization, and that was how he and I originally met each other. Hmm. And tell me why you thought he would be such a great guest for the Bring the Light season of No Place Like Home. One of the things that has always stood out for me on social media is how he has had his Muslim faith at the center of his life and his environmental advocacy. He's actually even written a book about it. And, uh, you know, I think there's probably a lot of misinformation out there, certainly a lot of, of fear around the Muslim faith, around Islam here in the United States. But there are actually a lot of really profound teachings about our relationship with nature and one another. And I think it's really relevant to the environmental movement right now. And it was, I was really excited to have a chance to explore all of that with him. So for starters, Ibrahim didn't grow up in capital N nature, as you know, I'm enjoying here in West Virginia. He grew up in the concrete jungle in Queens and Brooklyn, uh, where there were buildings and pavement as far as the eye could see. I remember being in my apartment building in Brooklyn when I was a young boy and looking out of the window at the top floor and looking across what felt like an endless landscape of apartment buildings. And that was the reality that I understood was the entire world. And that my mindset was like, oh, so this is the world. And then one fateful day, his dad took him and his brother to a place called Bear Mountain for a hike, which was outside of the city. And when it came time to pray, they were out in the woods, and that was not a place that he was used to being, much less praying. And I remember him saying that, you know, we were going to pray. And at that point, I thought prayer meant being at home or being in the masjid. And then him saying, well, the earth is a mosque. And that was a statement of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, was that anywhere you may be at the time of prayer is a place of prostration, that the earth is a masjid. And obviously places that are not clean or not, you know, that have been soiled in some specific way. But other than that, you should be able to enjoy the entire world as a place that, and you should treat the natural world the same way that you would approach a place of worship. Which is a profoundly different way than we approach it. Correct. Most of us. Yeah. Mm, I spent this morning walking around your beautiful yard here in West Virginia, and I did. I just took a moment to look around and just be like, this feels holy, like this feels sacred. And I do think that me remembering that and connecting with the natural world helps me want to protect it. And I, I love that story. So he wrote a book about Islam and the environment. Tell me more about this book. Yes, uh, that was what inspired me to reach out to him for this podcast. The book is called The Green Dean, what Islam teaches about protecting the planet. And so, my, of course, my first question was, what 
is what is Dean, D-E-E-N, and it means way. So it is like a way of being. So let's hear more from him about that. There's a section of the Quran is lakum din wa liyadin, which means to you your way and to me mine, which means to you your religion and to me mine, which is basically there's no compulsion in religion, but also just that you should have a way, you should have a practice, something you're working on to try and better yourself and be reflective. And so within this context, it was like, you can think of it as like a thread within Islam that is mindful of our relationship to the planet, putting our relationship to the planet over profit, and as we know, but there's a thread within Islam that's really consistent around developing and nurturing our relationship to the earth. So I asked him to break that down for me and walk me through it, and he had broken it down into these six principles that he goes through in his book, and as we talked about them, one of the things that struck me was that a lot of them are very universal, and I think shared by other faiths, including mine, but there's a poetry and an elegance to the way that they are laid out here that I I just found really powerful. It sounds so beautiful. Let's do this. Tell me more. Well, the first one is about understanding the oneness of God and creation. Tawheed. And that's an important one because it's uh, the best way to explain to me is that if you've ever been, um, and you obviously have, been to the top of a mountain and you've climbed your way up the mountain and you're finally there, it's a perfect sky. You can see into the distance. You can see the shadowy parts of the distance. And you are like, wow. You lose your breath for a moment. We normally think, look what God has done. Right? That's what we think. We're like, look what God has created. But in actuality, that is you recognizing that you are connected to that creation that you are literally part of that. And that's the reality of the oneness of God and, and creation. We are all a part of creation. And just that profound, deep level heaviness of that, because you can either feel tiny or you can feel actually really big, you know, really big when you connect with the universe and understand the, the scope of it. So I think that that's a really important framework to begin with. I think that experience that he's talking about is exactly why I got into this movement. Like I remember a, a very similar experience on a mountain in New Zealand and I was like not very interested in serving others or using my life to do good for the world. I was interested in making money and dating cute boys. But I did. I had this moment which I could like I can only describe as like a falling in love moment and it was like that just like intense awe of this world and and this connection to it and this like, I want to protect this thing. And it was really that moment that drove me into 15 years of work trying my best to protect it. Wow, so a birth of an activist, but also a spiritual kind of epiphany. Oh, that's beautiful. The next principle I think will resonate with you as well, which is about seeing God everywhere. I think that there's a idea that you walk into nature and nature is, is as if nature is the Quran. Ayats in the Quran, the word ayats are like literally verses of the Quran, but ayats are also signs within nature. And so that you walking in the forest is like as if you are walking in the Quran. You know, being at the beach, being at the ocean, being at the top of a mountain, being in, immersed in sort of a snowy landscape and carving your way through, that's as if you're in that. So there's signs of God in every part of creation. So I just found that really powerful, this image of walking through nature um, as though you're walking through a holy book, the Quran, 
the Bible, uh, whatever your holy scriptures might be, and as a profoundly different way of orienting yourself to the world. So, and then that takes us to the next principle, the third one, which is about being a steward of the earth and taking care of this place where you find God. That concept of, of stewardship or creation care, caring for this earth is totally in line with not only Christianity, but most wisdom traditions, faith traditions in the world. And in my conversation with Ibrahim, we talked about a belief in Islam that there's actually a covenant between us and God to be protectors of the planet. So it's not just something that you should do, but you're actually bound to do it. And so that's the fourth principle that he laid out. This is important from a Muslim perspective. We understand that our role was a, an agreement that we had with God. And so that there's a responsibility that comes with that agreement. And that's a really important part of it. That it's not, that's why written contracts are very important within the, in the context of, of faith is making sure that you make a commitment to someone. It's not just in the ether and you write it down. Those, those words have meaning and they exist. And in fact, if you write words in Islam, if it compels people to do good, you get blessings from that process, right? So you, there's, there's, a, there's a piece of this that is in self-service, right? <laughs> in the best way. Exactly. <laughs> in the best way. And thinking of that as an, an actual agreement that we have with God to protect the earth with that kind of consequence, that kind of weight. Correct. That's serious. That's 110%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize the first commandment in the Bible was to steward the land. And it's very integral to, you know, because the Old Testament is also used by the Jewish faith. So it's very integral to that as well. And it's, I think a lot of people think of like creation care or environmental stewardship as like a nice to have, like in a lot of churches that I've been to. It's like, oh yeah, that's that's great. But it's actually like a core, not even a core part of the faith, but of like God, if you believe in God, literally commanded humans to care for the earth. And that I think is related very closely to this next one that I particularly liked. Uh, the next principle, the fifth principle, which is about moving towards justice. Yes, Adel. So Adel is justice. And I think this is important to understand uh, Everything exists within balance. So that's Mizan is the next one. The idea of balance and justice are really connected. So everything in the universe is created within a perfect balance. We need nothing else. The water does not sort of need to be replenished from some imaginary source. It's not created. We don't create the water. The water is in this closed cycle. So this delicate balance is really crucial. You shift the balance, you create injustice. We have poisoned the planet Earth. We have dumped our toxins in the planet Earth. We did that out of greed and a lot of out of other things, stupidity, or just, wow, that was a great, what are we going to do with all this oil? There's lakes of it. Let's have boats swimming in it in Texas in the 1800s. Yeah, sure, maybe you, it was useful then, but is it useful now? We poisoned the planet, and so now that, that's the, the idea of that. If you're going to poison it, it's out of balance. How do we get it into balance? So by moving towards justice, the fifth principle you can achieve the sixth, living in balance with nature that he was just talking about. And you and I know those two things are intimately connected with one another, and that's been such a big central focus of the work that you and I have both done all of our lives. I like that a lot of Native Americans say that like the land isn't actually separate from you. It's like a part of who you are. And I feel that way about the Gulf Coast and the Appalachian Mountains. Like I feel more whole when I am in these landscapes. But that, you know, how both of us got started in, in environmental work was mountaintop removal, which was chopping the tops of the mountains. And it was definitely like 
devastating on a natural landscape level and an ecosystem level. But the other component of that is it destroyed communities and it poisoned people and caused cancer. And we are, you know, we are a part of this land and these ecosystems and what we do to the earth, we do to each other and ourselves. More broadly, when we're out of balance with the earth, um, when we're, you know, extracting oil, coal, et cetera, out of the ground, we're tipping the balance towards war and injustice. And, you know, obviously we're now at a place of heightened tensions with Iran and heightened tensions in the Middle East. uh, And our appetite for oil has always underpinned that struggle. And it was interesting to hear Ibrahim talk about Iran in particular as actually a hotbed of environmental awareness and environmental activism dating back for decades. One of the countries that has had the earliest environmental movement in the Muslim world is Iran. So in the midst of whatever disconnection that we've had from the country of Iran, like the 80s, 90s, that's when their environmental movement was thriving. Um, they were the one, some of the people to, to stand out and, and talk about um, you know, limiting use of oil and gas and Anyway, it's just instructive that there's a lot of movement happening across the globe. Muslims are involved in a lot of important things because because of climate change, Muslim communities are on the front lines. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, you look at another country in the Middle East, Syria, a lot of people don't realize that that war and that civil unrest was very undergirded by drought. They'd been in one of the worst droughts in the history of Syria, and that led to farms not being able to survive and people losing their livelihoods and not being able to eat and just a great deal of unrest, which, you know, of course, turned into one of the worst civil wars we've ever seen. It makes so much sense to me that not only on a practical level that climate change and environmental degradation exasperates these injustices and war and violence, but on a spiritual level, it makes sense that that is connected as well. You know, when you have these obvious connections between climate change, drought, food shortages, political instability, we still here in the U.S. struggle to connect those dots because within a lot of the Christian community, there is a strong climate denial thread. And there's still this feeling that the climate science is up for debate still, even in the world that we're living in. But Ibrahim and I talked about how uh, that is just not a factor in his faith. That's like a non-starter in the Muslim context, because in Islam, science is like you use science. The scientific method comes from Muslims trying to figure out how to solve certain problems. Not comes from, I'm sure it came from all different places, but it was one of the, it was heavily used, that method of inquiry, which is the basis for a lot of Muslim scholarship. That's the approach that you're supposed to approach the scholarship. And then the idea of like you studying the way a plant operates or the studying um, physics is for you to understand what God has created. That's the, that's the frame within a Muslim context. It's really you as a, as a seeker, um, the scientist as a seeker. So that you aren't weighed down by the same climate denialism. There's none of that context at all. None whatsoever. The the debate doesn't even exist within a Muslim context. It's really purely in the Christian context. And it's not in the Jewish context either. either. It's a very, that's why on this term, Muslims and Jews are very similarly focused on it. It's like, it's very clear. Something's happening. Human beings are making it happen. This is a moral dilemma. Um, It seems absurd that uh, any of that, the, I get so mad at my Christian brothers and sisters on this. So do I. (laughs) (laughs) Like, why are we stuck on this conversation about science? Well, um, you wrote about the pattern of daily prayer the Muslims follow that reminds us to also be in sync with the Earth's natural patterns. You wrote that a green dean starts with self-reflection 
We need to get right within ourselves in order to treat the earth as the sacred place that it is. And for Muslims, prayer is key as it allows us to organize our day around the remembrance of Allah and at the same time be in the same rhythm as the planet earth. So I thought that was a good, I think a lot of people right now are probably feeling overwhelmed by whether it's again being on the brink of war in the Middle East or the fires in Australia or just sort of feeling the sort of world collapsing in around us. And I expect daily prayer is an important thing that is part of that way we want to teach our children to organize themselves, you know. I'd I'd love you to reflect on what it has meant for you because I think that would be powerful for our listeners. Prayer has always been something that's been important to me. And then it's sort of gone into different phases, obviously, like you would expect, like anyone's practice. I did, I recently completed Hajj, um, my pilgrimage to Mecca a year and a half ago. So from that moment on, my relationship to prayer has completely changed. And the structure of, of like you aligning yourself before the sun comes up for Fajr, you know, and the sun is the, at its highest point at Zur, which is a time frame. And then Asr, another time frame in the late afternoon. Maghrib, which is just after the sun goes down in the evening. And then Isha, which is at night. Those times give us a context of a universal context. As a being on this planet, we are literally aligning ourselves with the way that the earth is moving, spinning around. The notion that you would have a practice that that literally aligns you with everything in the universe is astonishing to me. I don't understand why anyone wouldn't want to have a practice that does something similar because it reminds you that you are a human being. Like you are, you do have some kind of, you do make sense in some way. For me, part of it, what it does is that it brackets and it's like pillars throughout the day and it brackets the day. That doesn't mean that every day I make them all on time. It just means that that's an important framework for my brain to understand that it's a space of gratitude. It's a space of um, reflection on what I currently have to do. And it's a space of, of hope, of like sort of not just hope, but also planning and intention setting for what I want to do and what I'm trying to do. I make prayer tactical. So I make it like, oh, God, I'm going to go sit down with Marianne Hit, and we're going to talk about some good stuff. Make me make sense. I mean, <laughs> you know, and then I'm going to go and do that because that's part of the to me, that's part of the structure of my day. And then the smaller prayers are, are crucial for that. Um, because it, it just re- keeps you back going back to your intention and keeps you reflective. And frankly, it keeps you out of trouble. Yeah, I had I went through this period right around when when I had that moment on a mountaintop in New Zealand. But I hadn't been praying for years because I didn't like the evangelical <laughs> church I grew up in and I associated prayer with that. But I was into this kind of scary moment involving sailing. I was in a dangerous situation. And I remember praying for the first time in years my prayer was, God, if you can't calm the storm outside, please calm the storm within me. And that has always been my go-to. It's still, it's something I come back to and it really does center me. I love the idea of praying as the sun travels across the sky because that's the other 
kind of, I'd say the most recent form of prayer that's become really meaningful to me, you know, earth mother, God, whatever, whatever you want to call it, please just let me be a vessel. Let me be of service to you. And and I think that that does, it helps recenter my frame from like, oh, can I do this to like, just let me be a source of love and try to bring my light to the world in whatever way makes sense. And as climate advocates, I think as, as much as intellectually we're thinking all day long about the state of our world, how often are we mentally, spiritually, psychologically pausing and actually sort of settling into ourselves and where we are as human beings on this earth? My Christian background doesn't necessarily have any kind of a, a tradition like that one, the, you know, a literally kind of aligning yourself with the trajectory of the sun over the course of the day. But I left the, the conversation thinking about how can I better incorporate that into my own life. One of my good friends told me recently, God is in the pause. And it just so hit home. And I think it does have to do with that taking moments of reflection and just stopping doing and just being with something sacred. I do think the other like really important thing that faith communities bring to the world or have historically brought to the world is community, the sense where people gather and they connect and they kind of brainstorm and strategize. And I think we see that powerfully in how, you know, black churches are really kind of where the civil rights movement was sparked. And a lot of the civil rights leaders came out of faith traditions and were ministers. We've seen some of that in the environmental movement, but I'm curious, like kind of what what do communities of faith or religious centers, how do they play that role in spawning this social movement? Well, I did ask Ibrahim about that. So let's hear what he had to say. We're not sort of co coalescing around in movements in the same way that we have. I think I'm so hyper-focused on what is our state at the moment around, we don't, we don't have the same natural gathering places. So like if you go to a place like Richmond, Virginia, you'll meet people at work, you meet people at church. Where is that place? You might meet people at the bar. Right. There's like two or three places where people will connect. But what are they connecting on? Sort of like reaction from exhaustion from capitalism. Right. And less and less the respites are those places of worship. So it's harder to see that movement and energy growing. However, I'll say this. You still have a backbone in most places in this country where the people of faith are the family folks. They're the folks that are have time, frankly. <laughs> Um, and they probably could be more engaged in this particular moment on things like the Green New Deal or other things that are huge parts of the environmental agenda in a way that maybe they haven't been plugged in. Anyway, so maybe that's a thought for how that could be that energy could be manifested now. But I don't think you would ever have any of this environmental work without truly heartfelt, faithful, prayerful, kind, generous people. Hmm, that's an interesting thought because I, I totally see that and I believe that we need that heartfelt, faithful, prayerful, kind and generous people um, in this movement. But I wonder, is that is that the only way to be a part of the climate movement? Good point. And, you know, looking at it another way, the environmental movement has been viewed, I think, fairly as pretty secular and maybe even unwelcoming to people of faith or faith perspective. So it's not that you have to be a believer or part of some organized religion to be caring for the environment, but more that it's coming out of a place of compassion, of generosity, of some connection to something bigger than yourself. That ultimately there's there's some sort of empathy and sort of spirit of service that is at the heart of all this environmental work folks are called to do. 
I love that. And I do think that he's right that communities of faith, churches, congregation, mosques, they're one of the only places in our society where people still regularly gather. And that is such a powerful nexus point that we should be galvanizing and we should be engaging with. And I've tried to do a good bit of that in my career, but we have so much work we could do on that front. Yeah. And a lot of these faith communities already are those gathering places. And Ibrahim talked about that about mosques that are taking on more sustainable practices and and providing leadership in the climate crisis. And all of that is against the backdrop of some very scary times to be a Muslim in the United States, where we have intense Islamophobia and anti-Muslim rhetoric across the country, including in the White House. Um, And so we talked about that. We talked about where he finds the strength and hope, given that climate that we're in right now. I mean, I'm very cynical about this, but this is real. The major problem we have in the world is white supremacy. Like, so the idea that white people are superior to other people that has manifested in the slave trade and other things that have happened throughout history to people. Um, And then people have benefited. Lots of people have benefited, even if they haven't intentionally been part of the system. A lot of people that are not white believe in that system as well because it serves them or also because it's nothing else for them to even imagine. So I think that all of the things that you're describing, any group of faith, that's the thing, the main thing we have to sort of figure out how to root out to move in a direction that's going to be beneficial for everybody. So that's, that's where I'm at. Yeah, this one hits close to home, living in the Deep South. My partner, my husband, is a teacher, and a lot of his students are Muslims because his school is one of the only non-religious schools in the area. And after the election, that's what he woke up with. I'll never forget it. He just looked at me and said, what do I tell my students? And it is such an important thing that we all stand up against those stereotypes. I see it not only connected to our spiritual calling and just good human calling, but it's very connected to our environmental work and trying to fight for justice for everyone. Yeah, we, I think, are being called now to look as a society, if we have the courage, at the systems that we have subconsciously accepted. White supremacy, colonialism, capitalism is another one. Ibrahim and I talked about how now... Uh, we all associate all of our value with what we could produce economically with our jobs and how that has created a spiritual crisis of its own rather than valuing the individual inherent worth of everyone in the eyes of God, independent of your economic status or your contribution to, you know, the machine as another important thread for getting into a right relationship with this earth that we can get from our spiritual traditions. You're valuable because you exist because God created you. You're valuable because you have a soul. You have value. And everything in creation is similarly valuable. There's no, you don't have to work for value. You don't have to earn value. And that to me is like the baseline fundamental shift difference between these systems that we create that are based in greed and control and um, and extraction um, versus ones that maybe could be about regeneration, which we've had for a long time, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> systems that lend to regeneration. I love it, you know, to focus on renewal and just connection and living in balance with the world and with each other. So the green dean, as Ibrahim called it, the green way. We must all find our green way in this world. 
that's why we're talking about this in this season of No Place Like Home. We're all looking for the way, the green way, the way that we can build towards regeneration and renewal. And some of us find that in faith and spirituality and ritual, and some of us don't. Um, this isn't about being religious and certainly not saying that you have to be religious to act on climate change. It's about finding community and finding practices that help nourish and form you. And the work ahead of us is big and challenging, and it's going to take everything that we've got, and we need one another, and we need deep wells of strength to draw from. And I think we just heard about one really powerful one today in this yeah. conversation with Ibrahim. It was absolutely stunning and beautiful. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meditate on it for a long time. Thanks to the great band River Wireless for our theme music and to our sponsor, the Sierra Club. We are distributed by the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. This episode was produced by Allison Wilson. Y'all, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and also leave us a review there. It really helps us out and it helps other people find our show. And join the conversation between episodes by following us on Twitter at MPLH Podcast. And remember, there is no place like home. Podcasting is hard, but it doesn't have to be. Introducing the science of a podcast, hosted by Spreaker from iHeart. This weekly podcast looks at the many sides of the podcasting industry, from success, growth, and technology to the varying challenges we all face. This is one podcast about podcasting you don't want to miss. New episodes launch every Tuesday. Listen to the science of a podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.